Well, please look with me now back in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up our series this morning. Mark chapter 3. And I'll read for us Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20 uh, through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Then he went home, that's Jesus, and the great crowd uh, gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a great crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we pray as we have just read your word that it would be your words uh, this morning and not my own that would go forth. Uh, may our hearts be attentive to your word, to listen diligently as you teach us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, illuminate your word uh, for us and for our benefit, that you would testify to our hearts that this message is true, this message that Jesus has made us to be his family. Give us the, the eyes to see, the hearts and the, the faith to believe it to be true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was watching uh, Pastor Rick Phillips uh, preaching from this same text, and he made the point at the beginning, at the outset, that some Bible passages are, are more famous than they deserve to be. And his point is not to say that, that some passages are not important. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired and inerrant. All Scripture is important. But sometimes, and his point is, that certain passages, certain phrases, they can take on a life of their own that is unwarranted from the context that they're in. And I think he's right about this passage here this morning. Um, I know a lot of, of you, like me, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and maybe you uh, had heard about this unforgivable sin, this unpardonable sin, and that was a cause of worry or anxiety uh, for you. Uh, have I 
committed something that is unforgivable, uh, unforgivable by God. We, we think, and I can remember thinking, we, maybe getting to heaven and, and God being there and thinking, you know, everything looks good, I accept, I'm sorry, but there's this unforgivable sin that you, you must have missed along the way. We're going to talk about what Jesus means here by that. We're going to consider all these things. But we don't want to miss the big picture. We don't want to miss the main point. We don't want to become distracted by this with, with conversations about uh, demon possession, about uh, who these characters are, about any, any of those things. Those are important questions to, to ask, but that's not the main question that Mark wants us to be asking in this passage. And that's not the main purpose that Mark has written this gospel for. What's the reason why Mark wrote this, this gospel account? What's the reason that he includes this passage here this morning? It's for us to ask the question, who is Jesus? That's the point. And that's the question that we all have to ask. In fact, that's the most important question that any of us could ask ever in our lives. Who is Jesus? That's what this passage is all about. And Mark, he's going to use one of his favorite techniques. This is the first time it shows up here in his gospel. He's going to use the, the Mark sandwich to help prove and help drive home this question for us. So you know what a sandwich is. You have two pieces of bread. You have the meat and cheese, everything in the middle. This is what Mark's going to do here. He's going to start with one story. He's going to start with Jesus' family. Then he's going to shift the scene. He's going to cut into something else where we have these scribes coming down from Jerusalem. There's going to be a big chunk here in the middle. And then he's going to return at the end to his family. So that's the sandwich. The family bookending this passage and then this episode with the, the scribes here right in the middle. And at each point, each part of each of these three sections, that's the same question that's going to be asking. Who is Jesus? The same question is going to be asked and it's going to be answered. Who is this Jesus? And in this passage, Mark gives us the, the three, the only three options, the only three answers to that question. His family gives an answer in the first part of the story. His scribes will give another answer in that second part of the story. And then as Mark wraps back around, back to his family, and to conclude this passage, he'll give the third option as he brings this passage to the conclusion. So the first possible answer is that Jesus was mad. That's the family's view. He's out of his mind. Jesus is mad. The second possible answer is that Jesus is bad. That's the scribe's view. He's possessed by a demon. He's in league with Satan. He's a bad man. That's the second view. And then the, the, third, the third option is that Jesus is, I couldn't think of a word that rhymes, Jesus is divine. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is who he claims to be. He's exactly who he says that he is. He's the Son of God, and he has bound the bad forces of evil, and he has freed his people to be his family. That's what Mark wants us to see in this passage this morning. So let's work through each of these three possibilities together. We'll go through the order of the text. We'll go through this, this Mark and sandwich together. The first response to the question of who is Jesus it comes from Jesus' own biological family. Remember that Jesus, he's in Capernaum now. 
Uh, but his family, he, his family's in Nazareth, about 40 miles away. And so when it says that he went home, Jesus went home, it, he's going back to his home base there in Capernaum uh, during his ministry in Galilee. And there's a great crowd. This, this, he's been swamped by these crowds that have been following him to the point now where it says that he, it's even uh, difficult for him to have time just to, to eat, to have a meal. We've seen how these crowds, uh, they, they have grown massive around Jesus, and the word has been spreading throughout the entire nation, throughout the entire country. And word has gotten to his family now in Nazareth. They've, they've uh, found out, uh, they've been hearing all these stories of Jesus, so they, they're beginning their journey to go, and it says to seize him, to, to physically lay hands on him, grab him, shake some sense into this guy, because he's out of his mind. They had heard all the news that, of everything that Jesus has been doing. He's been healing many people. He's been casting out demons. But he's been ruffling the feathers of the religious authorities. He's been rebuking them and correcting all of their misunderstandings about what it means to, to fast, what the Sabbath day should look like, uh, all the different religious institutions and their hypocrisy that's there. Jesus is correcting all of these things, and word has gotten out to his family of everything Jesus is saying, all his teaching. And their conclusion is, well, he, he, he's lost it. He's claiming to have the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So clearly, he, he must, we need to go and get him. He needs to come back home. He needs to take some time off to, to figure out what's going on. So they went out. They, they walked the 40 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. His family sets out, his mother and his brothers, to come and to, to, to get Jesus. And that's the first answer to the question. Who is Jesus? Well, according to them, he's, he's lost it. He's a little mad. He's a little, he has a few screws loose in the head. And maybe you've thought about Christianity that way before. Maybe you've thought about our religion in that way. Maybe you've heard it said to you. Maybe you've heard people say, I think Jesus is a swell guy. I think he's great. I think he's He's wonderful. But all this stuff about him being divine, him being the son of God, God taking on flesh, all these stories in the Bible, all these miracles that happen, that's just a little too far-fetched for me to believe. That just sounds a little too crazy. You know what, I think maybe this Jesus guy, I'm sure he meant well, but maybe he was just a little crazy himself. A lot of the world thinks that way, and we know that, that this, this Jesus stuff is crazy, that you would come on a Sunday morning, there's so many more and better things you could be doing than worshiping some invisible God in the sky. See, that's the first response to Jesus. But is it the best one? Is it, is it true? We'll find out. When Mark returns to that at the end, but before he gets there, he leaves us hanging with that first part of the story. He shifts the scene now to the second part, this, this new story with new characters. And he, he brings in now the scribes coming down from Jerusalem, and he explains their response to Jesus, their answer to the question. Jesus isn't mad. He wasn't loose, any screws loose in the head. No, he actually, he was bad. That's the second answer to the question. He wasn't some mostly innocent, but uh, a little misguided. That's not who he was. 
but he was actually doing these things for the power of, of evil itself. That's the view of these scribes here. Notice, though, what they, they can't say. They can't simply claim that Jesus is making all of it up. They can't claim that he's not doing miracles, that he's not performing great wonders and signs. Because it's evident to everybody. So they have to come up with a reason why. They have to come up with their own story, their own account of the events. And that's exactly what these scribes came to do. It says that these scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now we know Capernaum is on the north side of Jerusalem. Usually we would say if you're going north that uh, you're going up. That's what we would say. But Jerusalem is on the mount. So no matter which direction you're going, you're always going down from Jerusalem. So the scribes, they go down from Jerusalem to go north to Capernaum. And as they go to Jesus, they're going to him not for any fact-finding mission. They've already been there and done that. But these are the authorities from the capital itself. They're being sent not to find new information, but they're bringing their accusations. They've made up their minds. It was determined already that this Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebul. It's by the prince of demons. That's how Jesus is able to cast out demons and to do all these miracles. It's because he's possessed himself. That's where he gets his power. Now, we don't know much about the nature or the understanding of, of this Beelzebul. This name shows up briefly in the Old Testament. Uh, Baal Zebub. Uh, he's mentioned as the god of Ekron, a, a city in a Philistine city. There's been various different interpretations for his name. Um, not all of those are important for us. What seems evident, what, what's the, the point here, though, is that he's some high-ranking demon in their understanding of, of how this system works, uh, the, the legions of demons at Satan's command. He was a prince of demons, and that's why Jesus is so powerful in their estimation. He must have a very strong, high-ranking evil spirit working in him, and that's how he's able to do all these things. That's the argument that they're making. Jesus is bad. He's, he's evil. He's wicked. And this then brings us to the very heart of the issue, the very meat of this sandwich. And that's why Jesus responds to them in these parables. He responds to them in, in these parables of this first parable here of the strong man's house. He asks them, how can it be? How could it be that Satan is attacking Satan? That's the worst strategy I've ever heard of. Satan's no fool. How can a kingdom survive if it's divided against itself? How can a house stand if it's divided against itself? Of course not. So why would Satan be using his own power against himself? Asking so rhetorically, is this the best that you guys can come up with? But this is what Jesus was doing. Satan's kingdom was under attack. Not from within, but from without. It was not one kingdom against itself, but it was kingdom versus kingdom. It was the kingdom of the forces of evil versus the kingdom of God. And when Jesus began his ministry in Mark chapter 1, uh, 14 and 15, this was his summary statement. This was his message that he brings. But this was not only a message of forgiveness, but this was a declaration of war. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. And so far in this story, Jesus has been undefeated in every skirmish and every battle that he's fought. And so his simple point in the parable is that 
if Satan's forces, if the demons, if they're being cast out, that can only mean that his kingdom is coming to an end. And sure enough, that is what is happening here. So he says in verse 27, that no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. After that strong man is bound, then you can go in and plunder and take whatever you want. This word for strong, it's the same word that John the Baptist will use at the beginning of the gospel when he says that there is one coming after me who is mightier than I. He's stronger than I am. And now the strong man has come. He's bound the weaker man. The strong man, the, the king of, of this kingdom of evil, Satan himself, he, he fancied himself to be the strong man, but there is one coming after him who is mightier. And now this strong man is bound by the stronger. That's what's being done here. And now Jesus is free after binding Satan, after he has defeated him, he, he defeated all his temptations in the desert, he's continued to cast out all of Satan's forces. And now he's able to come in like the man in this parable and plunder Satan's goods, plunder them from his kingdom, from his house. What are the precious goods that Jesus plunders from Satan's kingdom? Or the better way to ask that question is, who is the precious goods that Jesus plunders from Satan's kingdom? That's you and me. Paul says in Colossians 1, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that's who we once were. But now the mighty man has come. He's reconciled in his body of flesh by his, his death. He's reconciled us to God. He's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. How do we know this to be true? Because Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's a lot of firsts in this passage. This is the first Mark and Sandwich. This is the first parable of Jesus so far in Mark. And this is the first time Jesus says, Truly I say. Truly I say to you. That is a, that's, is a, a unique saying to Jesus. That's unique to Him. He says, Truly I say this to you. He says, All sins will be forgiven, including every blasphemy. Now we're going to get to that next part. We're going to get there. But notice what it says. Notice the promise and the comfort that's right here. Every sin is forgiven. Every blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is slander against God. That's what it is. It's speaking falsehood. It's speaking untruth about the living and true God. It's taking the Lord's name in vain in every uh, conceivable way we could understand that. It's attributing falsehood to God. Jesus says that all these things will be forgiven. Even when we misuse his name, even, even when we misunderstand him, even when we fail to worship him and recognize him as Lord in our lives, even those things will be forgiven by the blood of Christ. This is the great comfort that we have. We cannot skip over this part and immediately go to the next. There's great comfort here. But we know that there is also warning. Because Jesus says that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this is a serious warning. How long is eternity? Eternity is a, is a long time. 
Eternity's forever. So certainly, this is literally a life or death situation. And so, of course, that raises the question, well, what is this unforgivable sin? And am I in danger of, of committing something that could be unforgivable? But notice the answer. The answer to this question is right here in the text. It's the very next verse, verse 30. Mark gives us the definition of what this sin is. He says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And simply put then, that is the unforgivable sin. It's not some unknowable, it's not some mysterious thing that we might do by accident that God will hold against us. That's not what's going to happen. You are not going to get to heaven, dear Christian. You're not going to get there, and God's going to surprise you with a laundry list of things that you have not done, or that you have done that you should not have. That's not how this works. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The unforgivable sin, rather, is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by claiming that Jesus is bad, that Jesus works under the influence of some demonic possession. That's what he's saying. I love how uh, Pastor Kent Hughes puts it, puts it very well. He says, very simply, it, this, this sin, it is the ongoing and continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. That's what it is. An ongoing, continual rejection of what the Spirit is testifying to about who Christ is. That's what it is. The unforgivable sin is rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. Well, how is that sin, how is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit's job is to testify about who Jesus is. The third person of the Trinity's job is to testify about the second person of the Trinity's message and that his message is true. So to deny the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ, is to call the third person of the Trinity a liar. And if you call him a liar, if you purpose in your heart, if you say and you purpose to believe that Jesus, that he is not the Son of God, that there is no need for confession and forgiveness of sins... If that is what you believe about Jesus, that he is not the Son of God, that he is not your Savior, and if you take that belief in an ongoing, perpetual way all the way to your grave, then you will receive the punishment that is due to that sin. That's the sober warning of Jesus' words and his message. And if that's true of you, if you've been purposing in your heart to not believe in Jesus Christ, to have nothing to do with Him, then today I beg you that you would reconsider. Because here's the thing. Jesus is not mad. Jesus is not bad. What is madness, what is folly, is to not believe in His message. But if you're doubting, if you're wondering, if you have put your faith in Christ, but your faith maybe is not as strong as you want it to be, I hope that this is a comfort to you because this warning is not for you. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit does not mean that we can never have any questions, 
It does not mean that we might never have any doubts. That's certainly not true. That's not at all what it is. And this saying is, is so true, it's so helpful, is that if you are worried, you might have for, committed the unforgivable sin. That's actually a sure sign that you have not committed it. If you are worried that you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, then by definition, you have not. Because you're trusting and you're resting in Christ and you're looking to Him. It's the regular, it's the ongoing defiance of Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. That is what is unforgivable here. Because forgiveness only comes through Christ. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. So it follows, if you are not in Christ, then there is no forgiveness. But here's the thing. God is long-suffering. He is patient. This is not a once I, I, this is not a, I've made this decision and I can never change. That's not who God is. But he is patient with us. He wants to save us. He wants to bring us into his family. He wants to bring all of our doubts with us. He wants to bring any uh, worries we have because he has saved us. He has set us free. And he does bring us into his family. And that leads us right into the third thing that we see. This is the third option for who Christ is. This is the main point. This is what we want to see this morning. Jesus is not mad. Jesus is not bad. Those are two options. But the third option is what is true. And that is Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. And in verse 30, Mark returns to the, the, verse 31 rather, he returns to the first part of the story. He brings us back to Jesus' family now. They're here. They've, they've finished their 40-mile trek uh, up to Capernaum, and they've come to, to grab Jesus and to bring him home with them. And here we have his mother and his brothers. Now, unlike some traditions, they believe that Mary uh, remained a virgin forever, uh, that's, that's uh, not true, and we see right here that certainly she was a virgin at the point where she gave birth to Christ, but she had other sons and other daughters, and we are introduced to some of Jesus' brothers here, and we'll see them show up again in, in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel and elsewhere in Scripture. But here they are, Jesus' family, they've arrived, and Jesus uh, uh, looks to the crowd, and the crowd says, uh, Jesus, look, your, your family, they, they are pestering us. Uh, your family is here. Uh, they would like to speak with you. So we, we think that it would be wonderful if you would just go speak to them and, uh, and let's, let's uh, just get that over with. And Jesus says, no. Jesus looks to the crowd. He turns to all of them around him and he says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that he has no care for his earthly, his biological family? That's not at all what he's saying. And this passage is not at all a, a license for us to disregard our biological family and to not care for their needs. That, uh, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. We see clearly all of Scripture and elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus loved his family. He, he loved his mother so much that even as he hung on the cross, he was caring for her needs. He was making sure that she would be provided for uh, that she would be provided for after he was gone. But here's the point. That even Jesus' own brothers, even his own mother, they needed to believe in who he truly was. He was not mad. He was the Son of God. 
And like everyone else, they must believe in his name and be brought into the household of God. That's true of every single person. That is the narrow gate. That is the narrow road. Faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus, he does for his people. This is what ties these two sections, these two stories together. Jesus, he is the son of God. He binds the strong man, Satan, because he is stronger. He defeats sin and death, and he releases, he frees his people from the power of sin. That's what Jesus does. Like a strong man plundering a house, Jesus, he's swooped into Satan's kingdom. He's freed his people. He's brought them into his kingdom, and now they have been set free, and now they are a part of his family, his true family. Jesus' true family are those he says, who do the will of his Father in heaven, who do the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, first and foremost, it's believing in his Son and what he has done for you. That's God's will for you, that you would believe in his Son whom he sent because he had loved the world in such a way, in such a manner, he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's will for you. That you would believe the Spirit's testimony about His Son. He's not bad. He's not out of His mind. He's the Son of God. and He's the Savior of sinners like you and me. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he has the perfect quote. Um, it's obligatory when you preach on this passage, I think, to quote this passage from Lewis. He summarizes the point so well. He's writing uh, for those who would claim that Jesus, he, he can be some moral teacher, he can be some great person in history, but uh, he's definitely not God. Lewis says that that view is impossible. You can't, you can't make that claim. And so he writes, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You see those first two options there. Lewis goes on, he says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But you can't say that he was just a good moral teacher. Lewis says that he hasn't left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Lewis is exactly right. Jesus didn't leave any other options open for us. So what do you believe about Jesus? Is he a mad lunatic? Is he a bad monster? Or is he exactly who he claims to be? And if he is who he claims to be, then this is great news because he has set us free from the sin. He has forgiven us of our debts and he's brought us into his family. That's exactly what you and me, what we all need. Do you believe that? Let's pray for his blessing that we would have the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, the hearts to believe it. Let's pray. Jesus, we know, we confess that you are exactly who you claim to be. You are the son of God. 
And thanks be to God that in you there is complete forgiveness of sins. We have no need to worry about the eternal state of our bodies and our souls because if we have put our faith in you, then you have made us a member of your family. Help us to remember, help us to hear this good news always, Lord Jesus, because we need to hear it, we need to remember it. Preach this to us, we pray, in your holy name. Amen.